podcasting from the Star Group, home of the iconic Dressable Lions. This is Beyond the Known, the podcast that takes you a step beyond what you know about business. I'm your host, Paul M. Newberger, president of the Star Group. On today's episode of the Beyond the Known podcast, we're joined by Jonathan Reynolds, the CEO of Titus Talent Strategies. He's a visionary, entrepreneur, and game changer. He's energized by inspiring company leaders and equipping them with unique approaches to better understand their people, foster organizational alignment, and create optimum performance among their team members. Jonathan, good to have you here today. Good to be here, Paul. Good to be here. Thanks a lot for having me and uh, glad to be on your show today. Absolutely. Well, I got to start here. I mean, obviously, I've known you for a while here, but in an effort to introduce you to some of our listeners, could you tell us a little bit more about your background? And specifically, how did you get to where you are today? Well, I could start at the very beginning. I was born at a very young age. And no, I, um, I, was, I grew up in the UK. So I'm a Brit by birth, American by choice. And uh, I still believe this is a great nation. And obviously, a lot of challenges going on right now. And, uh, but uh, yeah, definitely uh, uh, rallying to see peace in this country. I just get that out there right now. And justice as well. But uh, we are, my family, we live in San Diego now. 22 years ago, I came to the United States. I've spent the last close to 20 years in the people industry. I have always found a, a joy in entrepreneurial things and entrepreneurial things of entrepreneurial nature. But really, I love helping people. That's at the deep root. I love working with people. I love helping with them, helping them. And if I can make money doing that and really serve, come with an angle of serve first, that's great. So I found and discovered that I was enjoying sales, enjoying being a solutions creator for companies and individuals. And then I found out that I could be in the business of working with people, <laughs> selling people, called the recruiting industry. And then, and then fast forward a few years into that, I realized I was in a really dirty industry, meaning we all know a good used car salesperson. Well, probably you do. There are good, we don't believe that used car salespeople are bad people, but there's a bad rap that goes with it because of the sort of selfish nature of big commission checks. And so that's the same in the recruiting industry. And so I sought to turn it on its head about 10 years ago. And that's kind of the story of got me, you got me, what got me to where I'm at right now a little bit just from a, with what I'm doing, but there's definitely a huge team behind me that's made our company great. So yeah, that's a little bit of the background. Yeah, absolutely. And I appreciate you walking us through that. We are going to circle back to your great team because Titus Talent Strategies is just a very highly regarded organization, both in terms of corporate culture, based in terms of what you do for your clients. So we're going to circle back to that. One of the things that you did mention, Jonathan, is that you find great joy in entrepreneurship. When did you first start to realize in your life that you had these entrepreneurial tendencies about you? probably elementary school <laughs> I would go down to the little uh, the little toy shop about a mile from our house and I was allowed to back then easy to go down at that age and you ride your bike down to the toy shop and take your change and find some some cool tricks and toys and I'd take them to school and people were like whoa that's so cool or whatever they said the word was back then and so I'd go back and I'd buy clean them out I kind of buy all of that and it, it was this little sh- <laughs> Ironically, I still carry this thing. In my, I carry some strange things in my wallet. So one of them was a little a bird whistler, and it could whistle really high pitch, and it goes in your mouth. And I still carry one right here today. It's this tiny little thing. You see that? 
and it goes on the roof of your mouth and it makes this really high pitched whistle, but nobody can tell you're whistling. So people thought it was the craziest thing. I'm an you know troublemaker, antagonistic, disruptor, even back in elementary school, and the teacher would never know who was doing this thing. And so then I would start letting on that I was the holder of this thing in my mouth, and and then I would go and buy more of them, and I would sell them at like crazy markups. And I thought this was the best thing. And so I kept looking for things that I could buy and sell, and I've been doing that all the way through my uh, school years and teen years, and it's just been something I've had a lot of joy in doing. Is if it makes people happy. I'm going to need to see you try out that bird whistle before we run out of time. That looks uh, pretty extraordinary there. So let's talk a little bit about entrepreneurship. How would you answer this question? Do you believe entrepreneurs are born or do you believe entrepreneurs are made? Well, I, I would lean to the, I think there's certain things in the upbringing developed in entrepreneurs. You'll probably find a lot of DNA that uh, runs similar in entrepreneurs, a wiring, a deep-seated wiring in them. But I believe that they are developed over time. They're made through trial. They're made through opportunity. They're made through a lot of them have found a lot of encouragement in their life. And they've also found a lot of discouragement. So they've had voices of discouragement that have actually caused them to rise up with the voices of encouragement. And so uh, if you, I love Richard Branson. So Richard Branson. A lot of it. Not all of his character, but I love a lot of his story. And even at a young age of six years old, his mum would tell him to get out of the car and figure out how to get home. Miles from home. Miles away from home. She could figure it out. Go figure it out on your own. And this adversity, this challenge and trial, you think, what the heck? I can't imagine doing that to my one of my kids at that age. Just to go figure it out. But I think there's something of a they are made through trial and adversity and then also courage. People have voices of courage around them. That's what I want to instill in my own kids. And I also, with anyone around me, like, what can you do to make the world a better place? I think that's part of the seed of entrepreneurship. What can you do to make the world a better place? And serving people doesn't just mean generating wealth. I mean, entrepreneurs, the word entrepreneur is is a French word uh, as far as etymology goes. And it's one of the definitions is to carry the weight of responsibility or carry the risk and responsibility on your shoulders. So we talk about that at Titus uh, is one of our values, entrepreneurism, and meaning you encouraged to take risks. We are not going to clamp down on you on process and compliance. We want you to take risks and we want you to be innovative. That means we want you to dream and we want you to think about different ways to serve our partners. And by doing so in the process, take risk. It may go wrong and that's okay. We encourage the risk taking nature to make the world a better place and serve our partners with our mission. So, so yeah, I think it's really important that we push people around us and encourage them to take risks. And I think that would in turn shapes this spirit of entrepreneurship, which is deep in our, in our country's history. And uh, when I say our country, I mean here in America, the of entrepreneurship and freedom. So let's talk a little bit more about granular detail, if you don't mind, because I can hear a bunch of executives and business owners listening to this podcast to say, okay, sure, great. We'll encourage our people to take risk. But how do you get them to embrace risk-taking? It's one thing to talk about it. It's another thing to encourage it, but it's completely a different thing to get them to say, you know what? I, as an individual, am going to start stepping out of my comfort zone and taking risks. How specifically have you been able to pull that off so well at Titus? It's funny when people say, you're an entrepreneur. I'm like, I'm not really an entrepreneur. I'm more of a businessman than an entrepreneur, but I've not started multiple companies. But 
going down to that thing of what I just said about entrepreneurism is to take the full rate, uh, full weight of responsibility and risk. I certainly feel like I'm doing that every day. Carrying a lot, close to 100 salaried team members around the country, I feel the weight of responsibility of their lives, their families' lives from many, many different backgrounds all over the country. It's a weighty responsibility and a deep care and love for the team. But as far as how do you foster risk-taking, it is not overnight. It is, a, is over time. Now, when you start talking about culture, you constantly, when, it, when you have a company that has a, a, a negative or a toxic culture, you can't switch, turn a switch and be like, all right, we're just going to be really positive, encouraging, and happy now. It doesn't happen. Telling people to feel differently doesn't really work. I tried it with my wife. You know, <laughs> it just doesn't work. I can't just tell her to feel differently. But it's deep how people feel. Do they feel safe to be themselves at work? Do they feel free to be themselves at work without any negative retribution to come upon them if they act in a way that doesn't seem to be a welcome, but different? I think we need to celebrate diversity in our organizations, diversity of thought, diversity of perspective, which is, is huge. As we celebrate those things, people feel free to be themselves. And if they feel free and comfortable to be themselves, that's where you're going to find a seabed of risk-taking and creativity. Because sometimes I can look at somebody else and think, wow, that was so creative. And they're thinking, it was? I was just being me. It was just different. So what is different to me looks really creative, but it's their norm. So people think, wow, you're really good at that. And I'm like, I am? That was just being me. I just do that every day. It wasn't even hard. So when we celebrate diversity and are inclusive with people of different backgrounds, thoughts, and perspectives, where they feel free to challenge and go, why did you say that? What is that perspective? Where did that come from? Why are you thinking that decision? That it should be the best decision. When they feel free to see that, you're going to find a fostering of ingenuity, creativity, different perspectives, and you'll become more entrepreneurial. So then the next part is when somebody does bring up their perspective, thoughts, creative ideas, or different ideas, you have to have a system in place that you can explore those things. So I do think here's where systems come in. Like, okay, what do we do when somebody comes up with a great idea or an idea that seems like it could be great? How, what is the format or the system or the process or the rhythm that we use to explore whether it's a good one or not? And does every person's idea count? Does it have equal weight? I don't know. So you figure out those things in your organization. What is our system and our process to, to discover if someone's got a good idea or an entrepreneurial idea that could save the company? So I think that's, you know, I probably have 10 ideas a day and most of them are rubbish. So, and I have to have an environment around me where people feel okay to say, that's a bad idea, Jonathan. Go back to bed, you know? But so I think there's a, a few things there. You've got to put some, celebrating the diversity of thought and perspective, making sure your values are really clear. But one of you, if you want entrepreneurism and risk-taking, you've got to you talk about it often. I had a great story of this. Uh, it was a, an individual who wasn't hitting their quota and they weren't hitting their quota or their goals in the company. And their boss sat down and said, so tell me what's going on. Why are you not hitting your goals? I was like, well, it's through a lot of conversation. They discovered this person was afraid. They were afraid to take some risks because they were afraid to screw up. They didn't want to mess it up. They didn't want to mess up the big deal. So they weren't going for big deals. And so because of fear of messing up, they weren't, weren't actually taking any risk. So their manager said, okay, I'm putting you on a performance improvement plan right now for the next 30 days, and you must fail. The performance improvement plan is you must fail at something. You must screw up a big deal. And I was like, what? 
screw, why would you want me to screw up a big deal? Well, because I want you to take enough chances and risk something because there's a belief system of if we go for five big deals and we screw up one of them, we might win four. And so I want you to, I want to push you to take risks and they got to be big enough risks that you could fail and we can then celebrate your failure. And when we celebrate failure, it's not like we're celebrating failure. We're celebrating education. Why would you fire somebody who screws up something? Like you just paid for the screw up. You paid for their continuing education. Don't mess that one up. And so I love it when somebody screws up and they lose a big account or they do something really bad. And you're like, I'm like, man, they'll never do that again. Let's diagnose it and figure out what it was that went on. Say, okay, that was great. I'm glad you went and took a risk and it didn't work out well because we learned something through it. But keep let's, let's, let's enhance that. Let's tweak that. So recalibrate that a little bit. But I want you to keep pushing and doing more risky things like that because that's how we change the world around us in a positive way. So I guess my question for you, Jonathan, based on your expertise in this area, and obviously this is what you do for a living, in addition to the information that you just shared, what would you say are the biggest reasons organizations cannot A, attract top talent, and B, once they get that talent, why can't they B, retain that top talent? Cool, yeah. It's a good question, age-old question, right? How do I find the best people? How do I attract them? How do I hire them? And then how do I engage and develop them? So and engagement and development go hand in hand. If you're really developing your people, they're going to be more engaged. So I think that's where, where one of the big areas for companies, they fail and struggle is once I've got them, how do I make sure I don't lose them is develop them, give them opportunities, develop where they're growing and being stretched on a daily basis. But so the issue of finding top talent, yeah, you're right. The top talent are out there and top talent, A players, the elite, the best of the best, whatever you're looking for, first of all, decide, okay, do you, are you really equipped to handle top talent? Do you have a company that top talent want to come to, that the best of the best people want to come to? That if you were to line up all of your positions and every role on your accountability chart or your org chart and say, okay, do I really want the best person out here? Do I want an A player here? It's good. Actually, it's a good question to ask because what you're actually getting to there is, do I value that role enough that I'm going to invest in that role, time, money, and development? And if not, just be real. Just like, no, not really. I'm not going to do that. And I just see a lot of companies say, oh, I want top talent. I want top talent. But they don't actually put the time, the financial investment, and the attention to developing that role. So you might have roles in your organization. You think, no, I'm actually totally fine with a B or a C player in that role. And I'm, this is from conversation I'm having with, with CEOs and presidents of, of mid-sized companies across the country. And through diagnostic, just some questions like that, I'm like, okay, so they're really okay with that. So which roles do you really want an A player in? Which one do you need a top of the top person? And then so once you figure that one out, say, okay, why would it, what is the job, first of all? What do I need to get done? What would success look like? What would make me say I got an A player? Fast forward a year and you're sitting down with one of your executive team or with the person that you hired and just say, I'm so glad we hired you and this is why what you've done this past year and, and just start role-playing in your mind's eye, kind of what would you be saying to this person that would make you say, they made a huge impact. This is an A player. And you write down those things because that's the job. That's what the, the job is. It's not your two-page job description. It's what you are saying to that person 
that they got done that would make you say they're an A player. So once you figured out what the job is, then you need to ask yourself the question of why would somebody who's an up and comer, and the key is an up and comer, this is the next step in their career. Why would they find my company, my job, and this role truly attractive? What is it about us or this position that would get them excited and make them want to hand in their resignation today to come and join me? So that's called the employee value proposition. Write that down. So why? And it's one or two sentences. It's your hook, your elevator pitch. Imagine you're at a trade show with a whole bunch of industry professionals in your space and you hop on the elevator at the end of the trade show floor day and uh, so you have, hey, what's up? What do you do? The person says what they do and you're like, oh my gosh, it's my position. I need somebody who can go boom, boom, boom. But I want to know, would you be open to having a ch chat with me, meet me for breakfast tomorrow? And this is why. And then you come straight in. Why would somebody want to make that move? If you haven't figured that out, don't go recruiting or slapping some job posting out there because you're going to attract B's and C's. If you want an A player, you got to understand how A players think. A players make career moves differently than B players and C players. They don't just apply to jobs online typically. They go because they want day one, it's got to be a bigger job than they've ever done before. Year one and beyond, they can see the growth trajectory of their career and how it's going to impact their life. And then thirdly, they look at it and say, how do I impact the world around me by taking this move? And that, that can be, mean different things for different people. It's the why. Why do they do what they do? So you look at those things. So once you've crafted, you know what the job is, what does success look like, and what makes them an A player, why would somebody want to come and make this move? And then you got to go and find them. So, and it's just not hard to find them. I mean, you can pay our company to do it. We'll happily do that for you and help you walk you through a process. But it is not that hard to find them once you've figured out who they are meaning who they are from a DNA, who they are from where they're at, stage of life, et cetera, what they're doing currently. You just find out the companies that have those people and go tap on their shoulders. We're in the data age. It's getting through the noise, but most people get through the noise with very, very bland, vanilla job postings and job descriptions. Think things like must have seven years of this, must have two years of this, uh, must be able to do dot, 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 dot. And you're like, okay. I can do all of that activity and I have that experience, but you're not telling me why I would want to leave my great job and come over and join you. So we are in an advantage right now, 30 million unemployed people in the United States. And so I think there's a, suddenly we went from three or 4% unemployment to talents from scarcity to surplus. The question now is, and I don't, I mean this with compassion and empathy. We all know somebody who's during this pandemic, who's, lost their job, they've been furloughed, they've lost their income, and it is tragic, 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 but I do believe we're gonna rebound and bounce back as a, as a nation. But the question is, what percentage of those people who've been furloughed are the A players? Because if I was furloughing somebody, I would not be furloughing my A players if I didn't have to. So that's a question, and I mean it with I don't mean it with any judgment. I'm just saying if that's the question, if, if you're fine to have great people, B's and C players who are great people who are going to work hard, fine. If you really need an A player in that, I would challenge you to go and look somewhere where they're currently employed and thriving and being a very, very critical team player in their organization. When we talk about how do you find these A players, how do you find top talent, Obviously, Titus is quite good at that. You've grown the company because your organization is very adept at having those conversations, identifying those individuals, and starting that process. Can you talk a little bit about how the traditional recruiting model is different 
from what you do at Titus Talent? Yeah, sure. I'll go back to my used car sales pitch. So if you need to buy a used car, you can do a couple of things. Uh, most commonly, people show, maybe they'll do some research on the internet, but then they'll go and show up on a lot and there's a used car lot and they have all of these cars and some salesperson comes out and says, what are you looking for there, buddy? And, and you tell them what you're looking for and they don't have that. But what are they going to do? They're going to show you a whole bunch of cars that they do have. And they're like, let me tell you and show you something that's really nice. And they get you to sit in it, test drive it maybe, kind of thinking about giving you all the stats and sell you on a car. But that's not what you said you wanted. You came in with a specific plan and saying, I'm looking for this, this, and this. And they're going to sell you something that they have that's not what you asked for. And that is my metaphor for how typically recruiters work. Because they make a big commission on day one if you hire that person. They have a database of candidates that they've worked with. And they're going to try and convince both parties that are a good match. Now, that's typical. That's typical in the industry, plus add in a whole bunch of unethical and dirty practices, which I want nothing to do with. So years ago, sitting with Milwaukee Electric Tool, or Milwaukee Tool, and it was Milwaukee Electric Tool back then, and I was sitting with them when we came up with a different model. I said, why don't we do this? Why don't we dedicate time to you? We'll dedicate time, dedicate our team to you. We will go after the best of the best passive candidate, just like I just described. We'll craft who these A players are, or what an A player would be, and then go and find A players. And uh, so we, we played around with this idea of a model to do this. And then they said, well, can we have access to your applicant tracking system, your database? Do we get to go after any of those people in there? And I said, there's nothing good in there. There's nothing good in that database. And kind of we chuckled and laughed about one of them because that's kind of the business model. I got every car on the lot that you could ever dream of. Like, that's just not true. And so I said, okay, we will go after the best of the best people. And we'll find it for you. We'll create you a custom database for you of the best people. So that's how we started 10 years ago. Now we're at 800 plus clients globally. We have we have Inc. 5000 fastest growing. And we do it with a, a different approach. Uh, fast forward five years ago, five or six years ago, we said, okay, hold on a second. We went through a bit of a rebrand as a company. Uh, became Titus Talent Strategies. And we asked the question, asked this question, what is the point in hiring? Why do we hire people? You think, that's a strange question. Don't we all know the answer to that? But I found that many people didn't know the answer. Uh, why do we hire people? And so we came to the conclusion it was this. We hire people to get a job done. Let's define the job by with quantifiable performance objectives. And we'll basically say that equals quality of hire. Quality of hire is when the job gets done. So we said, what needs to get done by the anniversary date? And then, then we did something really wild. We asked the question, what if we could guarantee that? What if we could guarantee by the anniversary date that the person gets their job done? And I went to some of the legends and the godfathers and the grandfathers of the recruiting industry and said, what do you think about this? What if we put a guarantee on performance 100% by the anniversary date? And they said, Jonathan, you're insane. You're nuts. Don't do it. There's too many factors you don't know. And I'm like, what? Like what? Like what? I thought, wow, there's the hiring team, there's the culture, there's this, there's people change performance objectives all the time, change their managers all the time. And I'm like, I'm screw it, I'm doing it, we're going to do it. I was like, hey, look, at, I got Starbucks here, and they say if I'm not entirely happy with my drink, just let them know and they'll replace it for me. And I'm like, what? that's my competition at Starbucks. So I, you know, we went at this thing and said, what do we need to know? What data points would we need to know to guarantee this? 
So we came up with three things. It's that we said it's the head, the heart, and the briefcase. The briefcase is what do they need to bring by skills, experience, and, and performance in their background? That's about a third of the equation. Typically, we hire people based on this, and then we fire them for who they are. We say we hire them for what they know, fire them for who they are. So I said, okay, we want to discover who this person is. So there's the briefcase, then there's the heart. It's all about value alignment. What are your cultural values? How do we define that? How do we assess that in an interview process? And then the head is the behaviors and their cognitive. So we must benchmark that using a, a legal, validated assessment tool. So we happen to use Predictive Index and full disclosure, we're a licensed partner to them to sell, train, and implement. So, so it's the head, the heart, the briefcase. If I can diagnose what is needed for each of those before I start recruiting, now I can actually benchmark the candidate to that and guarantee performance. So for the last five years, we've been doing this and uh, we only replaced two people. We guarantee performance and the flipping amazing icing on the cake. This is where I am a little bit wild is this is not charging for our services on day one. We don't charge for our services on the day one of the hire which is where most recruiters do. They say, okay, I gave you a person. Now you owe me a big fee. We've spread out our stuff, but we, ultimately where we get rewarded is on day three, six, five on the anniversary date when the person's accomplished their task, which is wild. Wild enough to work though. And, and I think that's what we talk about. We talk about in a crowded field like recruitment and a crowded field like your industry. I mean, you got to stand out a little bit. And if you're that confident in your product, you're confident in that services, what you're talking about would certainly make sense. I have to imagine this is going to differ a little bit on an individual by individual basis. But in terms of trends, Jonathan, what are you seeing with respect to what potential employees are looking for? Are you seeing that they're looking for more work from home opportunities. They're looking for ping pong tables in the break room. They're looking for, hey, I wanna dress cash and wear my jeans. I mean, again, I, I know this differs from person to person and organization, but a guy who has his finger on, these, on the pulse of all these various trends, what really are you seeing out there and what should some of these potential employers start to take under consideration? It differs by individual. I think we are in an age where customization of everything is at our fingertips. So, you know, I wave my Starbucks drink here, but I customized that while I was driving to Starbucks and I put my order in at the traffic light and it was there waiting for me. And they said, welcome, good morning, Jonathan. They gave me, gave me my customized drink. Now I have a 14 year old daughter who's in high school and she has a customized education path. Blows my mind. She does a whole semester in one month and then she moves on. She does two classes in a month and the semester is done and then moving on, moving on. I'm like, wow, that's so cool and creative. The only problem with that is we're raising a generation right now who customize their education path and one day they're going to become an employee in the workforce and they're going to want to customize everything, which the reality is my daughter's born when the iPad, iPad was born and everything's been customized for her anyway at her fingertips. So I think understanding that. So then look at the values of each generation. Now, generational values are almost like labeling gender or race or something like that. You can't just lump everyone together. We really do need to look at individuals and value individuals for who they are. But as a generalization, baby boomers have valued security. Job security is, is something that's been really important. Then the next would be your Gen X. One of the big values is significance. I want my life to count. 
and want to have significance in the world. The next would be the millennials who are the big freedom generation. And then you've got your Gen Zs all about purpose. And so if I'm going to go and work for somebody, it better have a purpose or meaning behind it, a sense of meaning in my work. Do I know what I actually do on a day-to-day basis matters and does it count to something? So those are things, looking at the values by generation, but even more so, if you're going after and hiring Gen Z or millennials, understand this thing of freedom and significance and purpose and figure out as you're recruiting those individuals, what's important to you? Because it may not just be money. And certainly don't go out and say, hey, we have people who've retired from here. Our average uh, tenure is 23 years. You know, (laughs) it's not going to attract a certain generation, especially when average tenure of an organization for boomers is seven years, Gen X is five years, millennials are two years, Gen Z of one year. Obviously, they're just new into the workforce. But you see this trend and then you've got half the United States workforce now declaring some type of gig employment. They have taken some secondary income in gig employment and many have a desire to replace their traditional income with their own income that they can control. So you look at this, I think there is a shift in the workforce right now where people say, I want to control my career. I want to control the customized path for me. I want to control my education path. I want to control my income. I want to control when I work and when I don't work. I want to control who I work for. And I don't want to be bossed around. Like, whoa, there's a whole generation coming up that value collaboration in their voice. Whereas previous generations say, you should just be happy to have a job. You should be thankful for this and you don't get to dictate these things. There you're going to have a rub and you're going to have a difficulty in the workforce if that's a part of your culture and DNA. I don't think it's about wearing flip-flops and jeans and beanbags and break rooms. I don't think that's it. It's going way, way deeper than that. And you need to look at every individual and say, what is important to you and can I create that for you in this environment? When it comes to culture, now, I know people can just talk in generalities. You need to have a good culture, have a good culture. Culture is important. For these business executives and C-suite individuals that are listening to this podcast today and they say, by golly, Jonathan Reynolds really got me excited today. Starting today, we're going to change our corporate culture. What would you say are two or three action items that those C-suite executives or business owners can start to take immediately to start to improve their overall corporate culture? I'm not the best teacher on this, but I'll speak from experience. So of what we did, and I think there are loads of different perspectives and angles on this one. I mean, some people would say it definitely starts from the top culture does, meaning your leaders have to live it. It's a culture is about behaviors. What are the acceptable behaviors in your organization? What is acceptable? And then what is normal? So there's acceptable and then expected and what is normal? So there's an expectation of how we behave and how we treat one another, how we welcome one another, how we value one another, how people's voices are are recognized and listened to and input is given. And I think that all of those things can, they can go into kind of your, what make up culture, but it does start with your leaders have to live it. So if leaders don't care about certain things and it's demonstrated by the way they behave, that will run through your whole culture because people crave leadership. They want to follow someone. They want to follow people. It's, we love leadership. You know, leadership is a good thing. When there's good leaders in place, companies thrive. And so I think one of the ways that we did this was early on, we said, okay, let's create our manifesto. 
And so this is a who we are document, our guiding principles, where we're going, how we're going to get there, and these things I'm talking about. So we basically said to everyone, culture, give one, two, three words that you would use to describe our culture. Rather than us just kind of creating some kind of whiteboard, like this is who we want to be. It was like, who are we? Because uh, we liked who we were. We, we really did like who we were. We had a good culture, but we just bring in definition to it. And so how do we behave? And so we all kind of mapped out and everyone gave their input. And that was everybody. We asked everybody in the company to, to give input on this one. Okay, okay, okay. And we took that through and said, okay, so if this is who we are, are we happy with who we are? And it, it just so happened we were happy with who we are. We were. And so we just we took each one of the values and we, we call them lived values because we were living them. We were saying we are living these values. This is who we are. These are our behaviors. And we want to continue that and we want to massage that in and we want to celebrate those values. But we also want to make sure that when we bring people into the organization, we want to make sure that they match those values. They align with them. So we said, okay, are any of these values exclusive or discriminatory? We want to be inclusive and bring diversity of thought and perspective into our organization. We don't want to eliminate people. But when I say exclusive, I am, we are of an exclusive culture. You're not inclusive? No, we include people into the culture that's exclusive. <laughs> we don't want people who come in who don't live our values. We want people to live these values. It's exclusive to us as an organization. And we want people who live those values because I want to know that the person to the left and the right of me on day one, I know that they've gone through some kind of an assessment and an evaluation that I can trust that they live these values and somebody's vetted and screened them. That I can choose on day one to trust that person. It is both earned and given. We give them our trust because we believe that they are trustworthy. And then we all maintain that together. But the important part is, you bring definition to things. So one of our values, give, just give an example, is integrity. A lot of people have integrity. Enron had integrity on their values. It's easy to slap a value, or just a word down. It doesn't mean anything. So we say, okay, integrity. We are honest. We are ethically unwavering and we inspire trust. So part of our, def our definition of integrity is to inspire trust for our colleagues, our team members, our clients, and any vendor relationship that we're working with. Do, we, do our actions inspire trust? If it doesn't inspire trust, we violated one of our lived values and we deal with that one accordingly. So we have a very high bar on values and lived values in the organization. So I would go through an exercise like that, bring definition to those values, and then celebrate the heck out of them. So we reward, we celebrate, and we part ways based on living the values or people not living our values. And so we are value driven in our company. And I think that's one way that you can shift and adjust culture. Well, we've spent a decent amount of time better understanding Jonathan Reynolds, the professional. But with respect to Jonathan Reynolds, the person, outside of Richard Branson, outside of family, which nothing wrong with family, but a lot of people would, would reference them, who have been some of your biggest role models in your life and why? Oh, good one. Um, faith is really important to me. Family is really important to me. And then just deep relationships. So being an international, being an immigrant here, being a, an immigrant to the United States of immigrant parents who grew up in Asia, we are pretty international family. And so my relationships are very diverse globally. And I just, I value that. So 
I'll just say that kind of generally speaking, but faith really, really important to me. And as a Christian, I get so much wisdom and influence and uh, character development and business insight from the Bible. So that's, that's, a, that's a huge one. Next is my family. My wife is a, just a plumb line, just superb character and holds me accountable and guides me. And I'm very, very thankful for the gift that she is in my life. My kids, they grow up in, in their character have a huge impact and influence and a motivator for me to charge hard, to love well, to serve well. And I want them to see those things. And then team around me is is huge as well. From in our own company, I've surrounded myself with phenomenal people of character and of servanthood and of passion to grow something for the long haul. I think if you if you want to grow something fast, I heard a friend say this the other day, if you want to go fast, go it alone. If you want to go far, build a team. Because I definitely have that kind of, maybe it's a, I don't know, that mentality. Like, I'll just get out of the way. I'll just do it myself. If I do it myself, I'll do it better. A bit of a savior complex. I can come in and fix anything and just let me have it. I'll do it. Yeah, it's very kind of five-year-old, isn't it? I'll do it myself, all by myself. But I do have that in me and I have to check myself, check my pride and say, am I, what do I value here? Do I value just getting it done? my way or do i value building for the long haul and being in it for the for the long game and i do i value things built well and things that last and that requires an amazing team and not just a hierarchical this is my team to execute my vision it isn't my vision it is us it is our vision it is our goal as a company our goal is to give 30 million dollars by 2030 that's our 10-year goal we exist to transform communities and cultures. And so that's what we want to bring positive impact on the world. So that's our, our goal. Give, give 30 million by 2030 impact communities. And so that's, it's, that's big for us. But I think the voices for me, I'm not really mentioning anyone specific here, but, but yeah, it's, it's people around me who are just, I'm not getting my wisdom just from books of people I don't know because I really want to see the character of people. I value character over the gifting and some people have built some amazing things and that's why i say richard branson something that richard branson said or did what i see of character i don't know i don't know the person i don't want to emulate that man because i don't know his character i want to emulate people who have actually seen their character who they are in private and how they treat people and how they value people and i think that's probably one of the most disheartening things of uh, many leaders that we see on a global stage right now or a national stage is the sad and heartbreaking perspective when you look into the character of their life and you get to see how they treat people and you think wow this is so disappointing that my kids are growing up seeing that as a leader and it's it's got to change i think we're we're on the brink of something needs to change something needs to change big so yeah get a bit emotional about these things but yeah people of character is where i want to be around so when you say you get emotional about these things where does that come from? What well, I mean, we're, we're in a very poignant time in our history. I think we can't change the past, but we can change the future. And I think there's a, some change that needs to come to our, to our future uh, right now. I don't think I believe it. Something radical needs to happen of deep-rooted injustice. And we can't be blind to that. And we need transformation the way people are treated because of their 
background, their skin color, their origins. I just think, man, we gotta, we need peace in this country. We need love for our neighbors. We need love for one another. And uh, I think if literally, I think if we just stopped and said, okay, yeah, we just, we need a, a deep, something needs to happen deep at our core of loving one another. Well, amen to that. Jonathan, is there any, because again, part of this is obviously you're bringing a lot of value to our listeners. You're bringing value to the Beyond the Known podcast. Is there anything you were hoping we would have discussed that we didn't? Is there anything you would like us to address in the few minutes that we have? I can throw a question your way. We can have a conversation about whatever you want. There's a bird. There's a bird loose in the studios. What the heck? A kid at heart, Jonathan Reynolds, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I was hoping to hear that. Well done. Well done. I am good. Anything else to talk about here, my friend? No, we're good, man. Thanks a lot for having me. Uh, appreciate it. Yeah, I do. I do appreciate it. It's good to connect with you. Thanks for listening to Beyond the Known with Paul M. Newberger. If you like our show and want to know more, check us out at stargroup.com. That's S-T-A-R-R-Group.com slash podcast. We're also available on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts.